As is tradition, I invite you to please stand for the reading of God's word. Our sermon today is from Mark chapter 6. Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go on ahead to the other side, to, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. After saying farewell to them, he went up on the mountain to pray. When evening came, the boat was out at sea, and he was all alone on the land. When he saw that they were straining at the oars against the adverse wind, he came towards them early in the morning, the fourth watch of the night, walking on the sea. He intended to pass them by. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. Then he got into the boat with them and the wind ceased. And they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. The Word of God. Please be seated. For the last Sabbath of 2023, as we head into 2024, we have a reflection from the Gospel of Mark and a story of the disciples in a boat on the ocean and Jesus on the mountain. And then we see something fascinating in this scripture that always puzzled me. Jesus comes onto the water as he sees the disciples struggling and Mark says he intended to pass them by. Had you seen this before? The disciples on the, on, on the boat, on the, in the ocean, on the ocean, in the storm, and Jesus sees them from the mountain struggling and comes towards them. And as they're struggling, he's like, intending to pass them by. What a fascinating line in the Gospel of Mark here. Jesus is a little bit like this parent over here. Some, some interpreters actually believe that Jesus was embarrassed of the disciples like an embarrassed parent talking to your children to not slide down the banister as you go down, but yet they do that, and what happens? Embarrassment and almost near death. <laughs> the disciples are on the ocean in the boat. Jesus sees them struggling. Some interpreters say Jesus just wanted to walk by because he was embarrassed. They had been with Jesus for all this time, and yet they failed to do what Jesus asked. But there's something deeper going on here than Jesus being like an embarrassed parent. And so we'll dig into that a little bit for this morning. Mark chapter 6, verse 45 says the following. We'll go verse by verse. Immediately he made his disciples get in the boat and go on ahead. Where did they go? They went Go on ahead to the other side, to Beth Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. Now, the, the, the story just before this, Jesus had fed the multitude with five loaves and two fishes. That is the story that precedes Jesus getting, uh, sending the disciples on the boat. He sent them to go on ahead. And the Gospel of Mark is structured in three ways. The first is where Jesus calls the disciples and says, come after me. That's in Mark chapter one, verse 16. 
Jesus calls the disciples and says, come after me. The second movement in the Gospel of Mark is where Jesus remained with them. It says in Mark 3, verse 13. And Jesus spent time with them. Jesus was with them. Jesus calls the disciples. Jesus remains with the disciples. And now we get to the section of the Gospel of Mark, the third movement, where Jesus says, I've called you, you've been with me, learned my teachings, my ways, now you go and be my disciples. Come after me, remain with me, and go ahead. So we see in this first verse here, 45, that Jesus is sending his disciples to go ahead. Uh, the word go ahead in Greek, it's called proagain. It means to go before. What you may not know is there are two stories of Jesus in a storm in a boat in the Gospel of Mark. Ruben, if you go to the next slide, you'll see in chapter 4, we have the story of Jesus in the boat. Neither of the stories in the Gospel of Mark includes Peter. Those of you who are familiar with this story. In some of the other Gospels, uh, Matthew and John, Peter is there. He gets in the water and he goes down. But in the Gospel of Mark, both of these storm happenings don't include Peter. And in the first one we see in Mark 4, 35, that Jesus took the disciples with him to be with them. And Jesus was in the boat with them, and then the storm happened. Jesus was sleeping. They woke Jesus up. Jesus calmed the storm. But in the story for today, we now see he made his disciples go before him as he dismissed the crowd. And Jesus did not go in the boat with them. So Jesus is sending them ahead. Verse 46, after saying farewell to the disciples, he went up to the mountain to pray. Verse 46, after saying farewell to them, Jesus went up to the mountain to pray. Only after the disciples have both witnessed and joined in the miraculous feeding with Jesus, Jesus disperses the masses, and now Jesus goes up to a mountain with prayerful purpose to help the disciples on their sea crossing. So in verse 46, when, Jesus said, when, when it says, he went up to the mountain to pray, we see a mountaintop. And in the Gospel of Mark, mountaintops are significant. The commissioning of the 12 disciples in chapter 3, when Jesus called after them and Jesus was with them, it happened, Mark says, Jesus went up to the mountain to call them. When Peter, James, and John are at Jesus' transfiguration, Jesus go, uh, goes up to the mountain where they experience this divine epiphany with Jesus. And so discipleship is a prominent concern in the Gospel of Mark, and and, and, and Carlites are attaches it to going up to mountains. And so we see Jesus here. There's a weighty thing that's happening. And Jesus goes up to the mountain to pray. Mark chapter 6, verse 46 and 47. After saying to them, farewell to them, then he went up to the mountain to pray. When evening came... The boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on land. The two sentences here reiterates this physical and spiritual divide between Jesus and the disciples. We see in yellow words there, Jesus is up on the mountain. Where are the disciples? They're down at the, in the, 
and the sea. So there's already the separation, Jesus in the mountain, disciples in the sea, and now we see they were out on the boat on the sea and Jesus was alone. The disciples were in community together, Jesus was alone. The sea, or the lake, plays a, a prominent role in the Gospel of Mark. In fact, the first half of the Gospel of Mark, there are 19 times where the lake or the sea is mentioned in Mark. 17 times it happens in the first part of the Gospel of Mark. The sea, the lake, plays a prominent role in the Gospel of Mark. Uh, the first eight chapters, we see Jesus, what, what's called the sea crossings. Jesus goes from this side to that side, to this side to that side, always teaching and healing. And so the, 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 the sea is not only a geographic important location for the Gospel of Mark, but also an important thematic uh, element. In the ancient view, you see the sea was the place where evil powers held sway. The sea in ancient thought was where the evil powers hold sway. And in both ancient Semitic and Jewish mythology, the sea is associated with monsters um, with whom Yahweh is Lord over them. And so the sea here is not simply a, a geographical location, it is a spiritual location. It is the sender of evil. And so the sea is also seen in the Hebrew scriptures as the place of God's saving intervention on behalf of God's people. The primordial, the most important story for the Hebrew scriptures is the Exodus. And what happens in the Exodus? There is a sea. And God's people is confronted with the sea and with an enemy and with evil. And God there at the Red Sea in Exodus 14 saves God's people. So the most important story in Hebrew faith is one of God conquering the sea. Also the prophetic tradition. There's the old age, and the old age is the powers of darkness and chaos, the sea. And in the new age, Revelation 21 says, there will be no more sea. For God had conquered it all. And so for Mark's contemporary audience, as they are listening to this story, it reminds them of the Jewish war that they have with the Roman Empire and the per persecution associated with that, with death, with violence, with blood. And so as the disciples embark on the sea, they do so fully authorized by God with God's decisive victory throughout scriptures over the sea. And God invites them, calls them, is with them and says, you now go and have this power over. So Jesus' miracles and wonders were integral in this outburst of hope uh, in overcoming evil, specifically here on the sea. So summary for up to here. Jesus tells his disciples, calls them, is with them, and sends them out. Go ahead. And then secondly, we see that the sea is the location for the demonic sphere, and, but also for God's salvation action. So let's move on. Verse 48. When Jesus saw that they were straining at the oars against an adverse wind, he came towards them in the morning, the fourth watch of the night, walking on the sea. So Mark says that Jesus saw them. Remember, where's Jesus? Jesus is on the mountain. The disciples 
are in a rough storm on the ocean. And this is not about physical sight. This is about spiritual sight. Jesus is alone to pray and sees them. And the first glimpse that Jesus has, we see the disciples failing. They're fighting against strong, stormy winds. But it is first, it's Jesus' first seeing that brings salvation in this story. In fact, again, earlier in the Gospel of Mark, when Jesus called the disciples, Mark says, Jesus saw the disciples and called them. Jesus saw the paralytic and healed him. Jesus saw the multitude, had mercy on, compassion on them, and fed them. And so Jesus seeing is where the good news of the gospel always starts. Jesus' vision is what sets faith in motion. And Jesus' gaze is fixed on his disciple from the mountaintop. And as a reminder for us, even when Jesus is physically absent from his followers, Jesus takes part in our own tumultuous journeys. So Jesus sees, and then the next word I want to highlight in verse 48 is straining. Jesus sees that the disciples were straining. They were fighting against the wind. The the word again in Greek, basanitso, actually is used all throughout the Gospel of Mark, except for here, for demonic forces. So when they were straining against the oars, they were tormenting against the, the wind with their oars. And so we see again, Jesus sees them, puts this in motion, and Jesus sees that they are tormented by evil, by struggle, by difficulty. And then we see the next words I want to highlight is he came towards them. Jesus saw they were struggling. They were struggling physically, but also metaphorically and spiritually. But Jesus comes towards them. Jesus sees and Jesus goes. And this is where the good news of the story shifts The last word I want to highlight of this verse is the fourth watch. Jesus saw them. They were straining. He came towards them early in the morning, the fourth watch of the night. That's 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. So the disciples here are struggling for a long period of time. For hours and hours, they're fighting against the wind and against evil forces. And Jesus comes to them early in the morning which, chapter 16, we will see that Jesus comes early in the morning when Jesus is resurrected on the fourth watch of the night. But this fourth watch, they were struggling all night for nine hours. They were struggling. We see the Egyptians in Exodus when, when God saved them in this, at the sea there, the Red Sea. The author of Exodus says it was the fourth watch. So for Mark's audience, as they listen to this, all of this is familiar. God comes in the nick of time. God comes at the fourth watch in order to help and to save. So Jesus sees them. They struggle. He comes towards them at just the right time. And then we get this line that baffled me when I first read it. Jesus saw them, they were straining. He came towards them early in the morning. And then it says, he intended to? He intended to? He intended to pass them by. See you later. What are we to do with this? 
The fact that Mark says that Jesus seemed to pass them by here seems to undermine everything that has gone before, that Jesus saw them, Jesus came to them at their deepest, darkest time. Jesus comes towards them. So this, this uh, sentence, he intended to pass them by. What does this mean? So the word pass by in Greek is pararchomai. And for Mark's audience, they would immediately recognize the word or the phrase pass them by. Because this is exactly the same language that is used when God reveals God's self to Moses in Exodus. And it's the same word and phrase that is used when God reveals God's self to Elijah in 1 Kings. Jesus means to literally reveal himself to his disciples, but also to reveal God to them. And so we see when Mark says Jesus intended to pass them by as they listen to the story, the audience goes, oh, Moses, Elijah. The teacher's first response to their distress, God see, Jesus sees them, comes towards them, and reveals himself to them. He makes himself known. So Jesus' intention to pass them by is taking something that was already integral in Hebrew faith, practicing it in their moment of struggle. Jesus' self-disclosing presence aims to recall for his disciples the purpose he has authorized them to practice. So Jesus' presence helps them understand their practice. And so the stories of Moses and Elijah, we know them well. Here's a picture of the two of them, uh, where both Moses and Elijah were at their deepest, darkest moments when this passing by happened. For Moses, there was the golden calf and the people of God. What God had asked Moses to lead, they were, Moses called them stiff-necked, hardened heart. They worship the golden calf. And Moses goes in front of God and says, please, can you save our people? How can I live on with this people? And in his darkest time when Moses wants to give up on the people, God says, let me show you my glory. But you cannot see God and live. And then Moses goes in the cleft of the rock, as the song says, and God passes by and he sees the back of God. Elijah, the same thing. He was at the deepest, darkest moment of his life. Um, in his prophetic career, Jezebel had just issued a death threat for him, um, which prompted Elijah to take, as First King says, a one-day journey into the desert. And he first asked God to take away his life, but then he complains to God, I am left alone, and they are seeking for my life to take it away. And it is at this moment, just like Moses, when Elijah is at his deepest, darkest moment, even contemplating not being around anymore, where God reveals God's self by passing by. So that both Moses and Elijah can draw courage from that and continue in the purpose that God had given them. So in both instances, for Elijah and for Moses, God acts to pass by to reassure them and give them 
confidence through self-disclosure. And so as we look at this story, the purpose of God's self-revelation is not to provide a simple solution or a tonic. It is not simply to prove God's identity or existence. It is not even to give a miraculous deliverance for God's servants, Moses, Elijah, or the disciples. Rather, the outcome of each encounter with God when God passes by is to reinvigorate God's people with a renewed sense of passion for what God had already called them to do. When God passes by, it is to reinvigorate and remind them that God is with them and that they can go again. And the same is true for the disciples. Mark says Jesus intended to pass them by. Not ignore them, but to reveal himself to them and give them courage and hope through self-revelation. Then we get the last few verses. Mark 6, verse 49 and 50 says, But when they saw Jesus walking on the sea, they thought he was a what? They thought he was a ghost and cried out, for they all were, saw him and they were terrified. But immediately Jesus spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. The disciples are afraid, but notice, by the way, Jesus doesn't criticize them directly for their response to him. Ah! Jesus doesn't criticize them, nor does Jesus accept unquestioningly their response. Ah! Jesus leads in and he says, ego eimi, I am. And Jesus uses language, again, that the audience of Mark would have heard before and familiar with. Because the times where God passed by Moses and Elijah, you find next God saying, I am who I am. Which for the Hebrew people, you could not name God. And when Moses asked who would send me, say, I am who I am. I am that I am. And so, Jesus intended to pass them by, not ignore them, but reveal himself to them and encourage them, inspire them to continue in their purpose. Even though they fail, Jesus still calls them back to be their disciples. And Jesus says, I am, is here. Do not be afraid. So Jesus is speaking in the language that they know, and Jesus self-discloses to them in order to reinvigorate their faith. The last two verses, verse 51 and 52, it says, Then Jesus got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded. For they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. Kind of a Debbie Downer of an ending here. The disciples failed to grasp the empowering presence of Jesus in word, I am, and fear not, and indeed, Jesus walking on the water. But Jesus does not abandon them to their own struggles or their own stubbornness. The good news words are accompanied by good news action, and Jesus gets in the boat, and he is with the disciples. This threefold movement that started the Gospel of Mark, of calling them, of being with them, and now sending them out because they're Empowered to do so, but they fail, and Jesus does not give up on them, but comes back, calls them again, is with them, and sends them out. 
Isn't that good news? I don't know what your 2023 was. I don't know what your 2024 will be. But God calls, God is with us, and God sends us ahead. And in spite of what happens, God will always call us and be with us and send us as he's presence in the world. They didn't understand about the loaves. Uh, this is a little weird section here. But again, there's a distinction between the loaves and the fishes, by the way, in the story just earlier. Jesus had not asked the disciples to um, multiply the fishes. Jesus only gave them the loaves. And so when the gospel says they did not understand about the loaves, it was about their participation in God's work in the world. That God had called them to be the spirit of God in the world. That's why they didn't understand about the loaves. They had the power and authority. A couple of verses earlier, Jesus sent them out on the first missionary uh, mission, journey, and they cast out demons and they healed sick in Jesus' name. Then the feeding of the multitude happens and then the story where they are in in the middle of a storm, on the ocean, in the sea, not just geographically but spiritually, and they cannot do what God had called them to do. So they didn't understand about the loaves. And then lastly, they had hardened hearts. Uh, and in fact, the Gospel of Mark uses the phrase hardened hearts three times, once for the Pharisees, twice for the disciples. Jesus is harder on the disciples than he is on the Pharisees. Hardness of heart, of course, is something we know in the Old Testament as well, where God's people hardened their hearts. Not only Pharaoh, but God's people did and led to exile. But the important thing to note in all of this story is that the disciples continue on the way with Jesus, even to the end. And though this end, story ends in a Debbie Downer, Jesus does not abandon them. And so we have this cycle of Jesus calling, Jesus being with, Jesus sending forth. And no matter what happens here, that cycle continues. Jesus calls, Jesus is with, and Jesus sends. So as we wrap up four things, it's going to be a few minutes, Kevin, but that's all good. Love to hang with you. Four things, four C's as we think about struggle. The first is choose struggle. We tend to avoid struggle, and most of our life is spent doing the very best we can to avoid struggle. <laughs> or am I alone in that? But the Gospel of Mark says choose struggle. Lean in to that struggle. I'm gonna play you a video in just a second here. I have a few soccer-related things. I'm coaching soccer this season. Football is life. So a few, few soccer uh, illustrations today. But here is a team who are sixth. They're in the sixth division in the French soccer league. And PSG, Paris Saint-Germain, is the best team in the French league. So it's number one against 100 and 30-something, and there's a cup where everybody plays together no matter what league you are in, and here is the sixth team, I mean, the, the, the bottom team in the sixth division of the French league, 
while they're waiting to see who they're going to be drawn to play. You would think they would want to play against lower teams, but see what happens. That's not it yet. That's not it yet. The, the lowest team in the French division, separated by 130 positions. You would think they want an easy game, but they want to play against Paris Saint-Germain. We're the best and the most difficult. They're going to be annihilated. But they choose the struggle because football is life. Because you want to test yourself against the best. You want to head into the middle of that storm and practice what Jesus had invited you to do. So, as 2024 is just around the corner, choose struggle, lean in. And then secondly, coach in the struggle. You have a coach in the struggle. A Jesus who comes into the boat and says, do not be afraid, it is I. The thing that is really important to me in this story is that Jesus wants to inspire and encourage disciples to take responsibility and ownership for their own lives. Jesus doesn't want puppeteer with disciples. Jesus calls us, is with us, and says, there you go. I'm not going to hold your hand. It's what some coaches call joystick parenting. Here's a video of this. Have you seen joystick parenting in sports? You, a joystick parent? Johnny, go left. Okay, Johnny, back up, back up. Five steps, Johnny, back up. Okay, pass to Jackson. Get it back. Okay, move here. Okay, step left, step left, step up. Okay, shoot at Jackson. Okay, back. Okay, back. Okay, keep running. Run hard, Jackson. Sprint, 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 sprint. Keep running, Jackson. Keep running. Okay. Ooh. Hopefully, there are not many of these parents around. We have a soccer league with 180 kids. I'm the director of the league here for our church, and one of my main tasks is to remind parents they're not joystick parents. Number one, it doesn't help. By the time you've shouted all the things, that's 10 seconds down the play already. But the point is not to control your kids as they play the game. The point is to watch them do what their coach had invited them to do. Choose struggle and know you have a coach in the storm and in the struggle who is with you and wants to guide you to lean into what the coach is calling you to be. Thirdly, there is calm in the storm. Leilani told me, my wife Leilani told me that she had this quote on her wall. Sometimes God calms the storm, but sometimes God lets the storm rage and calms the child. Yes, there are times when God calms the storm, and hopefully there's more of that in 2024. But if there is not, there is a coach, there's a God who is in the boat and with us and calms us so that we can continue in the storm. Choose struggle. You have a coach in the struggle. There's calm in the struggle, and last but not the least, be confident in the struggle. Because 
You've chosen the struggle because you have a coach in the struggle, because you are calm yourself in the struggle. You can be confident in the struggle. We've just come through the Advent season. One of my favorite paintings that I saw on social media and did a little research is this painting from 14th century manuscript, Tameth Hours, which is Mary kicking behind over Satan. But what I love about this is that Mary hands the infant Jesus to the archangel Gabriel and says, let me do this. I love this. And at last year, you may have heard over the years as we preach sermons on Advent that Mary is a strong character, a strong woman who does God's will in strong ways. In this Advent season, we don't serve a meek and mild Jesus or a meek and mild Mary who is the mother, but we have a strong mother who says, you hold the baby, I go for Satan. So, choose struggle. Coach, you have a coach in this struggle. There is calm in this struggle because God calms you no matter the storms. And because of all of this, you can be confident in the struggle. My prayer for you, as we transition from 2023 and the storms that you may have experienced to the storms that you will experience, good news, of 2024 is that you'll know that God calls each one of us. God is with us and God sends us. And no matter what, that will repeat itself because of the grace and compassion of Jesus who passes us by. Amen.